what wisdom have I gained? What is it in this this long, involved, expensive, complicated, grant writing, multiple draft, letters to friends, Indiegogo campaign? What is it in this whole process that I end up with that is a treasure that I wish to pass on at the ending of this movie? Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 18. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of The Documentary Life. This is Episode 18. Episode 18 is brought to you by Blackbox.Global, the easiest way to turn your filmmaking skills into passive income. If you have old hard drives with footage, a camera to shoot new footage, and a computer to edit the footage, you can use Blackbox to start generating passive income today. It's freedom, plain and simple. If this is your first time tuning into the show, this is a podcast that sets out to inspire and educate you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. Much of this happens from the voices of the ever-growing connected community of what I like to call doc lifers. They're people like you. They're people like me. I am your humble host of the show, Chris G. Parkhurst, and I am honored to be the conduit through which much of this community speaks. Thanks everyone for joining me today. This episode marks the first Doc Industry episode for 2017. Today we are joined by best-selling author Joel Ben-Izzy, who is responsible for The Magnificent, The Beggar King, and The Secret of Happiness, A True Story, a book that we'll spend a bit of time discussing today. Joel is an award-winning storyteller, performing at festivals all around the globe. He's been a storytelling consultant to Pixar Animation Studios, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and other large corporations and organizations. I first met Joel on a trip to Puerto Vallarta. My good friend and colleague Brian had hired me to go along with him to shoot a bunch of video at an annual coffee growers and sellers conference. Brian and I usually did one of these types of gigs a year. I always enjoyed the opportunity to go do some work abroad, especially with a good friend. On top of all of the amazing people from around the world that one would meet at these conferences, there was often some brilliant speakers. One such speaker was Joel Ben-Izzy. I was looking forward to not only filming his talk, but also listening to the wisdom that he was surely to impart. You see, Brian had told me about this guy before we'd even gotten to Mexico. He had been thoroughly impressed with Joel's storytelling prowess and the way in which he was teaching people how storytelling can be employed in so many phases of one's professional and personal lives. So, being a filmmaker, I was obviously eager to see what this Joel was all about. After introducing himself to the audience, he promptly went into an old Chinese folktale about a man who had once owned the most magnificent horse in the kingdom and was the envy of all the people in the land, to which he would reply, sometimes what seems like a blessing can be a curse. Then one day the man loses the horse when it runs off. The townspeople are upset for him, to which he replies, sometimes what can appear to be a curse can be a blessing. A few weeks later, the horse returns with a gaggle of other equally magnificent horses. And so the story goes on like this. He followed up this parable with his own story, which detailed his own journey from a professional storyteller making a good living doing as such, to one day losing his voice, and being told he was never going to be able to use his voice again, to one day, much to the surprise of his doctors, gaining his voice back again. As I filmed him, I found myself mesmerized by his stories. He had a way with the crowd, this man up on the stage wearing chinos and a fedora, and a rather funny-sounding instrument that he seemed to use to emphasize cues or starts and stops to his stories. And he truly had a way of connecting with people through his storytelling, as well as he had a way of making people feel that they also could and should be telling their stories. So it is with great honor that I bring to you this conversation that I recently had with Joel Ben-Izzy. How are you, Chris? You know what? I'm doing pretty well. You know, it's uh, I'm happy that the holidays are over with. I, you know, I had I had some good holidays, but it's good to kind of also get back into the to the swing of things. So I'm doing fairly well. How about yourself, Joel? 
I am doing well, too. You know, when you ask someone how they're doing, you, like, always have to put parentheses around it, you know, because you could look at, like, the global scene and say, well, how are we doing? <laughs> Which, of course, the is new the first political thing reality. that came to mind, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, 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 and I think just once last year, somebody was able to ask, how are you doing? And, um, and I just answered how I was doing without it occurring to me, well, I, I am going Backwards in a bus over the cliff in the dark, blindfolded with a driver drunk into the pits of hell. Other than that, you know, pretty good. Well, yeah. Joel, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show today on to Documentary Life. I, I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, since I met you back in October, um, I've been playing with with a couple of ideas, as you know. And, and this was one of them. This is one I was able to to do in the more immediate time. So I really appreciate you coming on to the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I listened to bits and pieces of episodes, and it sounds like just a great topic. And I'm happy to share any kind of wisdom or story knowledge I have that might be of service to those who live the documentary life. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you, Joel. That, that means a lot. So if, if you wouldn't mind, um, just for, con- for context, if you, if you would be able to tell a little bit about your background leading up to how you would become a storyteller. Okay. Um, let's see, there's uh, knowing where to start. That's yeah, a, I know. I, mean, I've been, <laughs> but I, can, I can contextualize the book a little bit and contextualize okay. what I was doing in, in Mexico. Okay, let's do that. Um, that sounds great. Either or both. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Chris, you and I met in Mexico at Let's Talk Coffee, Puerto Vallarta. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the world of storytelling and story consulting has taken me to all kinds of places, um, especially looking for people who have stories that they are uh, needing to somehow tell. And uh, Puerto Vallarta, I, I've worked, of course, with Sustainable Harvest over the years because the world of coffee is so so rich in stories that is one of the 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 strengths of it you know that what what almost for for so many poor places around the world it's poor places that where coffee is grown and rich places where coffee is purchased Consumed, but those right. places that that are that are poor in in money are, are often rich in stories indeed and so my work with sustainable harvest has been to help connect the stories behind the coffee so that people in the wealthier countries where it's consumed can appreciate what it is they're actually getting, what it, what it takes for that coffee cherry to come down from that mountain somewhere in Oaxaca <laughs> and, and travel on the back of a donkey for miles, then in the back of a flatbed truck, and then to dry in the sun. It's, uh, you know, it's funny, the modern world gives us Almost everything, but the ability to appreciate what we have, what we have in front of us. You're, you're, you couldn't have. Uh, you can be more right. <laughs> that's for sure. That's, that's so. Um, I, I've been privileged to work with uh, Sustainable Harvest in uh, coffee events, bringing together the people in the coffee supply chain from the folks doing the work out picking and growing the coffee cherries. Um, usually, women around the world all the way in that supply chain to the baristas with their their tattoos and uh and and to help them bring and share the stories together and it's it's taken me to Colombia to Nicaragua to Mexico last year to Rwanda and this year it was where I met you back in Mexico right so I I love that kind of work um you asked about my book The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness mm. and that is a a story I, I fell into, which I guess often happens in stories, and maybe maybe that's something people find in documentaries right. that you're out looking for topics, and then one comes and taps you on the shoulder. Absolutely. Um, and this this was something that tapped me on the shoulder in a. I, I'd say it more than tapped me; it sort of shook me. <laughs> by the, and you know, I'd say it, it. You know, I'd say this was a story that grabbed me by the throat. Yes, let's, as it were. <laughs> let's delve into that a little bit, shall we? I, I had been traveling around the world telling stories for some fifteen years. Story time was my passion, and the only job that I've ever had, really, in my my life was uh, I had designed a degree around storytelling at Stanford back in 
you know, the early 1980s and set off to travel the world gathering and, and telling stories. And then after about, about 15 years on the road, my own story took a sharp twist when I found I had thyroid cancer, right. which is considered a, a treatable cancer. I actually had a doctor who called it a good cancer, <laughs> which right. is kind of like jumbo shrimp <laughs> or a friendly fire. It's like, what, what the hell is a good cancer? Right. What's Anyways, that supposed to mean? It's, con- it's considered treatable because they operate, they remove the thyroid gland, and you take a supplement and, and go on living. It's, it's, it's relatively straightforward, but in my case, there was a particular complication, which is that when I woke up from surgery, and I said to the doctor, what's going on? He said, oh, I wouldn't worry. What do you mean? I had just the faintest whisper. He said, no, we, we do this procedure, and sometimes that, uh, sometimes that, that, that nerve goes into shock. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, it could be a couple weeks, maybe a month. Come on back. Right. And after a month, they said, doctor, it's been a month. He said, you know, I said a month. It could be two months. I wouldn't worry. And after two months, I said, doctor, it's been two months. He said, you know, I, I, still, I still wouldn't worry. Give it three months. And after three months, they said, doctor, it's been three months. He said, oh, if this is three months, this is uh, permanent you won't be able to speak again. I, I hope this doesn't impact your work. <laughs> and that set me off on a journey over time as I, as I began to find two things. One, that I would never be able to speak again, as he'd said. And two, that that was actually a blessing. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it was a journey with with twists and turns, which is what makes for a good story, and uh, I ended up I ended up with that the story and uh, and my voice back completely to my surprise, wow. and wrote the book about it, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness. And 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 th- there is just so much to really kind of dive into here with what you've said, Joel. You've you've basically. I don't know, taking over half of my notes at this point and my questions, which is great. So we, I, I, and this is good. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful context to really get into, to, to what we're talking about today, which is you and what you do as a storyteller, what it means to be a storyteller, how it applies to documentary filmmakers, things of this nature. So we can, I, I'm, I'm happy. This is great. We can just kind of dive right into this. Um, I should have known better. You certainly wouldn't need any conjoling or any specific questions to kind of get into it. This is great. This well, is great. You know, I, in addition to being a storyteller, I'm, I'm a lover of documentary film and have a great appreciation for this this form, which I think is in a golden age. Mm, I think so, and too. I've been privileged to consult on a few different documentaries, helping people really to, to find the story they're trying to tell. Sometimes... As you well know, with the documentary, you get bazillions of hours of footage, and then you find yourself saying, well, wait a minute, what, oh, what story am I trying to tell? And now that I'm asking that question, what, what is a story? Well, and I mean, you're speaking my language, and you're speaking probably the language of the majority of my listeners. I mean, that's, that's the trick with documentary, documentary filmmaking, is you end up with these hours and hours of footage, and you kind of go in with... You go in with an idea of, of the film that you think you're going to have, and nine times out of ten, the idea that you originally thought you were going to be filming or was going to be your film, nine times out of ten, that is absolutely not what you end up with. And the beauty of that is, and, and really the beauty of the process for me with documentaries is finding that story and really don't remain beholden to what you thought the original concept was because often if you don't sort of follow the threads and the journey that that story may take you and take on itself, then you've, you've really missed sort of the essence of what you could have had as, as a beautiful story. And that's inherent in the nature of storytelling. You know, when you, when you drive along the road and there's, there's two road signs I notice. One is always one that says, slow children at play. And I think, can't those children play any faster? <laughs> and then the other one is soft shoulder. And I think, oh, I have like too much tension in my shoulders like everybody does, right? But, um, <laughs> but you, need to, you need to have a softer shoulder so that when something taps you on the shoulder, that little voice that says, hey, here's a, here's a story, that that, 
uh, that you can respond to it, that you can be ready for it. And yeah. I think that it must be the same in documentary films, and certainly the ones I've noticed is that what people have is um, there's a story to tell, and I think somewhere in the process of telling that story they think they're going to tell, they find themselves pulled along by a driving question. You bet. And it's that driving question and keeping that taut that I think leads to really good documentaries. And, and by contrast, the ones that fail are, are the ones that um, that simply present information yeah. in a world that has way, way, way too much information. Right, right, right. And, and they miss the story along the way, or they're maybe too stubborn to to go in the direction that the story wanted to take itself. And that's the thing. It's like, you can go into that, you can go into your documentary project having an idea what the story is, but you should know that the story is going to tell itself. And part of it is you're just, as a documentary filmmaker, I find I'm the conduit of that story. I'm telling other people's stories or I'm translating their stories so that other people can maybe enjoy them or maybe understand, you know, their culture better or their stories better. Mm -hmm. But, but, but a big part of it is, yeah, it's, it's this, I find it's this fine line of not being stubborn Find out, you, of course, you go in with an idea of what you think the story is, but n having the knowledge that that's probably going to shift along the way or the story is going to tell itself, being able to move with that story is key. But also knowing, but, but, but it's a fine line, right? Because you can't go on 3,000 different threads. Otherwise, you're just going to never finish the film. You're just going to end up with endless hours, hours, and hours of footage trying to follow a zillion stories when you really can only follow one story. So you have to also be able to sort of rein it in at some point and say, you settle into, okay, well, you know what? This is the story. Yes, there's a lot of lovely, lovely turns that we could take over here and over here, but you know, we've shifted in this direction and it seems like this is a pretty viable story. We should stay along this path. Otherwise, well, we'll never finish the film. I think that's right. And then God knows there are lots of documentary filmmakers out there with um, with films in progress <laughs> for many oh, years, yes. <laughs> and it's, they, I think they did a, um, you know, having having now written uh, two books, um, I've, I've and and uh, work involved in a, in a screenplay based on my my first book. Right. Um, there's a there's a process that can go on a long time. I think they, I think the survey some years ago, somebody just stood outside a supermarket in Los Angeles <laughs> and asked people one question, which was, oh, no. tell me about your screenplay. <laughs> and I think like 47% were able to describe the first scene, just of random people. <laughs> I mean, that says so, an awful lot. <laughs> so I think that, you know, to sort of help cut through that, you know, I think what we should maybe do is actually, Chris, just define <laughs> what story is, because we talk all about it, yeah. but it really probably is worth sort of, sort of figuring out what, what do we mean when we talk about story. As a creative, I've become used to selling my wares online for a while now. I've been selling my photos on stock sites for years, and I make a few bucks here and there. I thought I was doing all right and, until I began to hear more about selling footage online. Then I interviewed the founder of a cool new company called Blackbox for one of our Doc Life podcasts. These guys are starting by shaking up the stock footage industry. Since I joined Blackbox, I've been able to repurpose some of my old footage that was just sitting on old hard drives and collecting dust. Now it makes me anywhere between $20 to $40 per sale. It was super easy to set up. I just opened up a free account and began uploading my stuff. Blackbox took my uploaded clips and got them out to all of the major stock footage agencies in no time. I can now make money on those clips for the rest of my life. And I have to admit, I get a little dopamine hit each and every time I'm notified that one of my clips has sold. Dopamine and cash, great combo. One of the cool things about the platform is the collaborative sharing feature, so you can share the work and the revenue with a collaborator. 
Blackbox has big plans to make the lives of creators like you and me better, much better. They're moving into film, series, music, and even gaming soon. So Doc Lifers, if you're like me, you're always looking to find ways to generate some passive income. I mean, who amongst us isn't? So do yourself a favor and go to www.thedocumentarylife.com slash blackbox to sign up for a free Blackbox account today. Then get ready to taste some freedom. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash blackbox. We'll see you there. My next sort of uh, discussion that I wanted to talk to you was about this this idea of what is story, and specifically the term storytelling. Uh, sort of the word or term storytelling, it seems to have become this, the way that I've been seeing it, it seems to have become this overused thing or concept over the past handful of years, and at least in the film and video profession you know, that I work in. I remember... In fact, I remember about six or seven years ago, a producer friend of mine who I'd been working pretty closely with, I, I was tr- trying to describe sort of the work that I do and, 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 and how I was selling myself in the industry as a freelancer because, you know, I, I've, I'd been hired at that point a number of times as an editor. I'd been hired as a shooter. I'd been hired a little bit as a director at that point. And so... I was having trouble being seen a certain way in the industry when people needed, say, an, ed- an editor or a shooter, and 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 they didn't they didn't see me in either one. They sort of saw me as well. Yeah, Chris does a, a little bit of this. He does a little bit of that and a little bit of this because I'd worn a number of hats over the years. And he suggested his suggestion was to start referring to myself and to sell myself as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And. I got where he was coming from. I absolutely understood to that. And and at the end of the day, I, I've always considered myself on some level, certainly a storyteller. So I got where he was coming from, but I'll be honest, it felt a little too ad agency, almost hipster for me. And in fact, it felt almost like I was dishonoring sort of the historic storytellers and bards, if you will, of the past that had come before me. And so, you know, and, and now, you know, sure enough, it, it seems like every other ad agency or video production company or or freelance industry person, they're all using this word and selling themselves as storytelling or storytellers, mm-hmm. I should say. I would ask you, as who I consider a professional storyteller in the capital, you know, as in the capital S storyteller sense, how do you feel about that? Have you been aware of this this usage of the term like this? I've been totally aware. It's a good question. I've been totally aware of this, and I have seen just the abuse of the idea of story <laughs> grow in this bizarre humorous way where people um where people uh you know will say here's our story we're the best right right you know just 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 complete misuse and abuse of the tone of story just trying to tap into what they see a buzzword and of course buzzword, story right. is the world's oldest art form I think at least back to speech, maybe cave painting if they were, if they were painting caves before, but maybe you know right back there, and it will go on long after it continues, long after it's the buzzword loses its juice and they're yeah. on to the, the whatever else word. they refer yeah. to. So I, 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 it's, I, and what strikes me is how often people talk about storytelling. We're the storyteller, chief storyteller, and really yeah. have no idea what storytelling is um <laughs> and and so so then to, to give a definition yeah i think of, of what a story is um i think a story is a problem recounted in a way so that it makes us curious and makes us care mm. why does it have to make us the curious component i think i get let's dissect this a little bit and I guess the the care the care component makes sense as well. So, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here. Tell me about the curious component, and tell me about the the care component. Why those have to be working together and in conjunction to be a story? That, yeah, I think you know, a story certainly can have can can skew towards one of those or the other. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that heart mind connection I think that makes for a powerful story. Okay. So, and w- within the human mind, um, is something called the Zagarnik effect, and it, it's uh, it's named after a a, a therapist um, in the time of Freud. 
named Bluma Zagarnik, um, who no one has ever heard of. She was a woman and, and not nearly as famous as Freud, but she identified this something called the Zagarnik effect. She was in a cafe one day um, in a whole room full of people, you know, one of those Viennese cafes. She looked at the other table. There were like 12 people seated there. The waiter went all around the table, took everybody's order, and then um, came back with them, didn't write down a thing, and then came over to take Bluma's order. Hmm. And Bluma said, well, that, that's pretty good. How, how did you do that? He said, well, that's my job. And she said, yeah, but what is that person, that, that person over there, what, what did they order? She pointed at somebody with their back. And the way I said, I have no idea. He said, as soon as I <laughs> deliver this, I forget it, you know. And right. Bluma said, you don't know if they had the Café Mitchlog skinny or the Linzer tort or whatever. Nope, I forget it. And what she realized is that there's a certain way the mind is engaged when we hear something that's incomplete. Hmm. So if I say to you, bump, ba ba dump, bump, there's a certain tension there in that something is unresolved. Yes. That's, yes. And that's, that's the Zagarnik effect. Documentary filmmakers work with this all the time. Oh, man, that's great. we're all about what's unresolved. Right. right. And, and if it's resolved, then we lose interest like that waiter. <laughs> and, okay. And so... And, and we'll stay with it till we get to bump, bump, and then go on to the next thing. So that's, the, that's just a, a mechanical nature of human beings to hear, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. We want that resolution. Right. That drives us. Right. That's curiosity. Do, do. So that, that's, but, but also, too, when, you know, God knows we have so many riddles and things to figure out, and if it's just... If it's just riddles invoking the Garnick effect, but doesn't really touch us in any ways, who cares? And that is the that is the challenge: is to make people care in a world that is is just overwhelmed and overloaded and inundated with this. Yeah, inundated. With and, with, and with just an access to information, yeah. and you know, so many people say, hey, listen to this, hey, hear my story, hey, blah, blah, blah. you know, and we can, you know, you can turn on, you could probably listen to radio podcasts about storytelling full-time at this point. Yeah, absolutely, you know? absolutely. Well, listen to this American Life, Snap Judgment, oh, this one, oh, this one, this one. Yep, and, yep. and there's great stuff, but the question is, how do you, how do you frame and, and create a space that holds your story so that, so that you are able to give something to your listener, because I think mm. a story is also a, ultimately it's a gift. Ultimately you have something that you're giving and not selling, not pushing, not shoving down their throat, but something that you're giving. And I think that's one thing I've seen in documentaries is, um, is as people make, make stories they, they you see a story and you see it progress from one, you know front to front and then or from the beginning toward the end but oftentimes what you discover in writing a book or telling a story is that you want you, you have an ending that you're building up to mm. and it's really important in a, in a documentary i think to know that ending that you have to give and and so many times as people are are like sifting through many, many hours of material. They say, well, there's this, then this, then this, then this, then this. And a story put together that way becomes and then-ish, as we call it in the story world. Right, right. Whereas if we, if we sort of figure this out and then work backwards and say, all right, here's the ending. Here's where we're getting to. Here's what we are giving to our audience ultimately. Here's the gift. Now, Joel, just to clarify for my listeners, I feel like you are referring to more specifically the post-production, right? The editing and the writing part of the process of documentaries. Is that correct? Or are you also talking about the actual production and filming of it? I think it, it, it's, it comes to play in the post-production, but I think right. it's worth thinking about this from the beginning. I think it is and too. If you just go out there and say, well, I'll get a bunch of footage and see what I got. Oh, it's, man. it's not, 
Yeah, you, you can you can do I've it done on it. a lot of rabbits. <laughs> yeah. I've done it. <laughs> it's painful. It hurts to even you know to think about it because okay, I mean you you've answered that question both ways, and 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 I feel like in this conversation I'm saying yeah, of course it's it's both. It's not just post or production. It's it encompasses both phases and and really in some ways even pre-production. But in the case of of production as a doc filmmaker. If you don't have some sort of idea what the resolution is going to be or the message ultimately that you want to get across in your story, well, how do you go and then interview people, for example? Because there's going to be certain things that you want to get out of your interview. Like, what's the message? What are the themes that you want to get across in your film? Well, that's going to bleed directly into how you interview people as well as the type of people that you interview as sources um, for, for, you know, as, as sources for the documentary. And so I can see how it plays heavily in both areas of production as well as post-production immediately or initially, I thought you were referring specifically to editing, but of course it's production as well. It has to be. I think one could almost say you, you begin the process of a documentary looking for an ending. Yeah, right, right. You know, here's, uh, there's an equation too, um, and I'll, I'll 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 speak it out to you, and then you can put it on your website as well. Okay. But it's something that um, I think is helpful in thinking about this. Um, first, I'll just say the equation, and it'll just gonna sound like a lot of letters. D minus n equals i. I plus u equals k. K over t equals w. So that's the equation. I've D minus n equals that. i. That's the entire equation right there? That, that's the entire equation. D okay. minus n equals i. Yep. I, the next line is i plus u equals k. And k over t equals w. Okay, so I've I consulted with a lot of high-tech places as well, and I find this is helpful in explaining what storytelling is. So D is data minus n, which is noise. So data minus noise equals information. Okay. And that's kind of the process we go to. You know, we live in an age of, of not just big data, but ginormous data, like beyond anything we, we've ever lived in by a factor of a bazillion. Just the access to data and the growth of that. So we take out the noise, we get information. Okay. And that, you know, we live in the information age. But that in itself, information... I, the next line, plus U yep. equals K, that U is understanding. So information plus understanding, that equals knowledge. And now we're starting to get something. And we, you know, your documentary, you're going to be interviewing people who are knowledgeable and, and really sort of, not just that they have information, but they thought about it. But, but really it's that, it's that third line that, that's the, that we're looking for, K over T, equals W, which is knowledge over time equals wisdom. And Got I it. think what and we... Mind you, what I'm, we I'm, mind you, I'm writing this all down as you're speaking it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, so I'm it's taking so, the so notes. You can see it. And people can see it on the, on the website. Yeah. Too. But what happens is, I think we are in an age with so, so much or so many data, however you conjugate it, um, it's it's just it's just astounding, but we're in an age that's really hungry for wisdom. It, it it's really craving sort of that the wisdom and understanding and ability to make sense of all that data that information. Yeah, and when we look to a storyteller, whether there's somebody who like me is performing telling stories live, or writing a book that tells the story or you know, consulting, helping a group find the story, or when we're looking to somebody watching a, a documentary, we're, we're going to this thing uh, somewhere, whether we know it or not. We're saying, all right, so I'm going to follow this person on a journey. At the end, I'm going to hope to end up with some kind of wisdom. Some kind of wisdom, right. Some, some kind of insight, something special. I'm not going to be the same person after I've seen this as before. That's what I'd like from a documentary. What I want to ask you then is, 
is first of all, this equation is this is this an equation that you came up with yourself? Where did this come come from, Joel? You know, I in early days I did um, a lot of work for Hewlett Packard, right? Um, in something called the Wisdom Dissemination Project, in what was happier days for the company. Um, but an engineer brought part of it. I think it was in Belgium or somewhere, and it, it sort of grew. Um, maybe we added on that last line, and 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 there had, I, I've seen variations on it, so I, I can't really take credit for it. Yes. Okay. And there's been other places too. I was just uh, contacting Pixar again, where I've right. I've taught courses over the years, story skills for movie makers, um, where you know it, it's it's sort of similar ideas. You know, even though they're feature films and not documentaries per se, it's um, it's 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 the idea. You want to be able to tell that tell that story, or to to give that story. And there's something that is just so satisfying about a really good ending. <laughs> yeah, and I, it, stays, it feels it like some you. documentaries get there and um, say so. That's it. <laughs> You know, right. we, we we don't, you know, well, like, like we, we've given you all this information and, and you know, I want I want that, that piece. And if you're looking for that as you're making your documentary, then, you know, you're, you're, you, you're thinking, well, somewhere along this process, I went in with questions, ideas, curiosity, but I really, I really discovered something. And I'm going to be shaping this in such a way so that my audience can, can go through and discover something on that journey. Okay, hands up. Who here is living a documentary life? Would you say that you are? What does it mean to live a documentary life anyway? Well, we'll happily give you our definition. To us, living your documentary life means that you have crafted your lifestyle in a way such that you are able to make the documentary films you choose to make without it negatively impacting other aspects of your life, be that financial, your immediate relationships, or personal wellness. And furthermore, through the creation of your art, your existence is sustainable, creative, and fulfilling. Would you say this describes you? If not, is this something that you want for yourself? It was what we wanted for ourselves, and it took us quite a while to achieve it. Truthfully, there were many times we didn't think we'd make it at all. We were living in a world that was reactive rather than proactive, and it was costing us greatly. If any of this resonates with you, we'd like to help you find a better way. Because once we were able to honestly say we were living our documentary lives, we could look back and see what had gotten us there, and we knew we had to share it with others. We broke it all down and put it into Living Your Documentary Life, a program that helps you to craft your own lifestyle, relationships, and mindset in ways that empower you to make your best documentary films. You can find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife. Let's talk about something that you mentioned while you were going through the equation, and it's, and it's this idea of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to talk to you about wisdom and the idea of storytelling and stories as part of a healing process. I've mentioned to you when, when we met the extensive commercial and dot work that I've done, doc work that I've done in Southeast Asia. One of the countries where I've done the majority of that work has been Cambodia, a place where, as you know, a, gen- a genocide took place only 40 years ago. The sharing mm-hmm. of stories has seemed to, to become an important part of the healing process in this country. Now, that's only fairly recently, but I've experienced it to be, you know, very much a real thing. Now, places like Cambodia and and I think as you've experienced in Rwanda are incredibly rare in that the people who committed these crimes are free and in fact living alongside the families of the people that they killed. And there is forgiveness there, and there is now almost a symbiosis there. It's not perfect, but it seems pretty darn real. What, what part do you imagine does story play in this healing process? And have you experienced this, experienced this yourself in other cult- cultures as well as in your own Jewish culture? That's a great question. Um, it's, you know, I, I, it's, it, I mean, you, you describe it really very well. There's, a, there's the healing that comes from actually telling your story, simply telling it. Mm. Simply speaking, it you know after the Holocaust in World War II, uh, you know people were ashamed and 
didn't talk about what had happened in the camps, and of course that is that's that's not the path to healing at all. There's a healing that comes from actually being able to tell that. That's a help in itself, and then the real healing that can come from someone hearing it. And there's a saying among storytellers, um, which I first heard from a an old friend of mine who's just passed away, but a wonderful storyteller named Rosalind Bresnik Perry, who said, you really can't hate someone once you've heard their story. Oh, man, that's great. And I always wonder about that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Is that is that really true? And yet, you know, when when I think about what I what I've seen, when people have created the space and the intention for those stories to be shared, wonderful things can happen. I'm thinking of, you know, in Rwanda, um, where Sustainable Harvest has done this phenomenal work of, with Bloomberg to sort of set up a training for people who are subsistence farmers. And the, the question I was bringing to them was. Um, how, you know, how, how, how has this work changed your life? And of course, they, you know, they learn tremendous about, about, about coffee and how to grow coffee and, you know, just the techniques of it and, and the mulching and composting and pruning to increase the yield and just all kinds of things they learned. Um, but behind every story of this would come up a story of, um, of the genocide. So I remember one woman saying, you know, well, before the genocide, my husband and I, we, uh, we had a few coffee plants and we grew them and, and we sold the, the cherries um, for people to, you know, to make some money. Um, then when the genocide came, our next door neighbor came with a machete and, and cut my husband into pieces. Mm. And then he was arrested and, and taken off to jail. And when he came out of jail, he came to apologize. He said, I realized that was wrong, what I had done to your husband. I'm so sorry. And and he apologized, and I realized I either had to forgive him yeah. or live my entire life with bitterness. Yep, right. So I, I forgave him, and we began to form a nonprofit to help people forgive by telling each other their stories. Of course, nonprofits don't make much money, so I, all the coffee plants had died, but this program came along and helped me begin to learn to plant new ones, help to, to begin to care for them, when to harvest, how to prune them. And now, thanks to, uh, and she added, I think, to Paul Kagame, to Jesus, to Michael Bloomberg, and she listed a whole bunch of names she was thanking for, you know, I, I can live today and do this work. So... I think that when, when there is a stated intention that we need to hear each other's stories, when that happens, we can have healing. What we so often see these days is precisely the opposite. And having spent some time in the Middle East and seeing things they're heading into, it looks like a worse direction mm. um, with, with current politics. Um, it, it is clear that people who don't tell their stories are condemned to relive them. Oh man! And those who are those who are oppressed can become oppressors and become oppressed, and it just becomes this cycle. So the stories continue on almost as this undercurrent that sweeps us along, and either we're conscious of it and we share it and turn it into something healing. Where it just becomes a kind of a, a poison that can can just circle back. And if and if also I'll add that if people who are helping to tell those stories and disseminate that information to others, if they are silenced, of course there's great danger there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's I mean this is this is a a challenging time for documentarians, for journalists. Indeed. To get there, to you know, to provide the air and light and space and audience for that that story. Joel, let's talk about. Let's move on a little bit now to. Um, let's move on to the Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness, a true story, and that, of course, is the the full title of the book that we've been referencing throughout this conversation. 
Mm-hmm. I have to admit that when I first read your book, I was, af- I was, af- or I should say when I first picked the book up, I was afraid that I was going to fall in the category of say, you remember Richard Bach's books like Jonathan Livingston Seagull or, um, oh, yeah. or Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements, or you might remember, um, because I think this guy is from where you are in the Bay Area, Dan Millman, who wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior. The, these books were similar in size and shape and look and feel. And now upon, of course, having read your book, I, I would like to say that I was very happy to see that your book did not fall into sort of this type of um, sort of typical self-help personal development books, of course, who, who absolutely I've read a ton of them and, and have their place. Um, and this is not, again, to cast dispersions on those books. Again, I loved all three of those, in fact. But yours seems somehow more relatable, at least to me, on a personal level. And I guess more believable, if that makes sense. I mean, there was no levitating above gas stations in your book, if you will. You, you, you spoke of hardship and hope and family in a real sort of way that I that I guess I appreciated more. Of course, now, as is a case with, with any and all these books, there's a certain amount of latitude, right, in how one tells the story. As long as one is telling the essence of the truth of what actually happened, then that is the truth of the story. It makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of Hunter S. Thompson. He wrote this way, mm. where you know sometimes these fantastical or outrageous ways he had of describing events and stories that most likely didn't happen the way that he describes them or exactly the way in which he related the story, but the basic truth or core of what happened is really what matters, right? Details be damned. Filmmaker Werner Herzog, <laughs> you know, Werner Herzog called this the the ecstasy of truth, that through the various methods employed to tell a story, uh, sometimes the facts get in the way of the deeper truth of an event. Were you, uh-huh. were you aware, <laughs> which is great, right? Were you aware of these sorts of things when you were writing your book? And are you aware of it when you're telling stories on stage? Where is the latitude? And, and for you, where's the line between this idea of fact and fiction? Or is there no line at all? It, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And in the, in the book, I, I touch on it just a little bit um, when I talk about um, but true stories and what it means to be a true story. And it's all about uh, meeting Lenny, my old teacher. <laughs> yes. um, and, uh, and he told this particular story about a 1967 Mustang that he once had and a... And a um, let, me just, let me just pull it up here. Let's see if I have... Um, <laughs> let's, I, mean, I, just have I just picked up a copy here. and Let's see if I can actually see what it says. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, here, I'll share those truths I found as I tell you my tale, which is in itself a true story. But first, let me say what I mean by truth. <laughs> I use the word as storytellers do, the way my old teacher, Lenny, once spoke of truth. He had just told me a most amazing story about a golden retriever he'd once owned and a blue 67 Mustang convertible. And I asked him if it was true. True, he snapped. What do you mean by true? You want to know if it happened word for word exactly as I told it? makes no difference. You may as well ask me if it's a good story, because a good story is true whether it happened or not. And a bad story, even if it happened, is a lie. The question, (laughs) he added with a grin, is not whether the story is true, but whether it has truth inside it, the kind with a capital T. And that is a mystery only time can solve. There it is. Perfect. I, yeah, I, so. it, it's hilarious because it, that's Lenny, right? And so I, I can share this with you. On the inside of my book, I bought mine here at Powell's Books in, in Portland, Oregon. And so I bought a used copy of it. And inside, someone had written a note. Obviously, uh-huh. this book had been given as a gift. And it said, Dear Virginia, this is a gem. We all need to listen to Lenny. Love you, Marianne. Isn't that great? Oh, that is great. Great. And I love it, Virginia. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> that is really, really sweet. Oh, and, I, and I, of course, I love Powell's book. That's a, that's, that's, that's very, oh, that's a great story. Huh? Yeah, it is. I, I, yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that. I, I do want to ask one pretty specific question, of course, from the book. Uh, Tali, your wife, 
Mm-hmm. When, when you are asking her, what, and this is in the book, when you're asking her whether or not to have the procedure that could ultimately restore your voice, she tells you simply that she loves you and that, in fact, loves you more since you lost your voice. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you end up going on to have the procedure. It's successful, and you're able to fully use your voice and tell your stories once again. So I want to ask you, Joel, what is the lesson here, Joel? How do you take what your wife had told you about liking you maybe more so when you were without voice, and how do you apply it to your life now? How have you applied it since you've, you've gained your voice back? It's a good question, and I guess I could give the answer as I hear it in four words, which you'll probably cut from the podcast, but <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to give something so that you can probably use on the podcast um, the the lesson is in learning to listen yeah and the gift of being a storyteller and being able to shape words and be the one on stage and entertaining that can get in the way of that and I think one of the one of the gifts I was given uh, in my my journey um, was I learned to listen the hard way, and it's um, you know it's it's it, it's almost funny. I mean, I guess it is funny. I mean, it, it, it's maybe it's funny if it happens to someone else, but um, but it really was. I feel that I learned to hear things in a in a whole new way um, because of that, because of that, that loss. And I was able to hear my mother's story, which, which would have gone right past me before the end of her life. And there, there's something about that, that learning to listen. And certainly in the context of our modern life where, there is so much screaming and shouting and tweeting and just people putting out stuff there. There's it's a sort of a there's sort of a a hunger for that negative space, as it were, Ugh. where where people are curious and we listen. It goes back to curiosity, you know. Mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges in making a film is you have all this information, you have all this material you want to put and you've, you've recorded 600 hours and you're, you know, you're going to put it all in the, an hour and a half or two hours. Um, you know, and you want to shove it all in there, but what really people are, are starving for is that cleared out space where they can focus and hear something. Oh man. I think that's Speaking directly to me and to a lot of people, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, um, I know that, it's like, um, it was, I think Vladimir Horowitz, the piano player, when asked his secret to this, you know, this magnificent technique, he said, you know, he said, I play the notes just like everybody else. He said, but it's the spaces between the notes. Yes, that's right. Yep. It's the spaces And I between. think that that's what I, I look for in movies um, as I see them. Sometimes the, just a, a moment of silence or contemplation to let it settle. And it may be the same silence that I saw before the, uh, before the movie began, mm. but it has a completely different feel now because it's filled with something different. Oh. Last night I watched Requiem for the American Dream. Yeah, yeah. It was an interview with Noam Chomsky. Yeah. Um, and they, they did some lovely interscene works with um, dollar bills and imagery around that. Um, There was something the way that each one let me pause, reset, and think about the next next lesson and and digest the last one. And that, that space is very, very important. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of like sometimes people go on, on vacations and they stay, they're delighted to find their cell phone doesn't work and there's no internet. <laughs> yeah, of course. 
It's great. I, I think, I think Blessing from a curse. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, and I can tell that story, by the way, if you want. That might be a fun story to use. I would love to hear that, yeah. I, I think a, a retreat center that's nothing... It's very sparse, and they advertise me. There's no cell phone works here, no internet here. <laughs> Come, escape here. It's uh, uh, curses and blessings have become a uh, a, a big part of my my work and and what I what I talk about. Um, and the story that opens my book, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness, yeah. is a a story that sets the tone. It's an, it's a Chinese tale about a man who had a most magnificent horse and in the far north of China. People would come to admire this horse and say, that's an amazing horse, you're blessed to own it. And he would say, who knows, what seems like a blessing may be a curse. So one day the horse runs off, and people said, look, you've been cursed. He said, who knows, what seems like a curse may be a blessing. Two weeks later, that horse comes galloping back across the desert, but it's not alone, it's followed by 21 wild horses. Everyone is magnificent as that first horse. And people said, you're right, it's a blessing. He said, who knows? What seems like a blessing may be a curse. They said, but you're rich. A few days later, his son, his only son, whom he loved dearly, was riding one of those wild horses. And he was thrown from it and broke his leg. And people came and said, you are right. It was a curse. He said, who knows? What seems like a curse may be a blessing. They said, but look at your son in pain. And it was not long after that that the emperor came through and drafted every able-bodied young man for a war against the people to the north. And it was a horrible war fought solely for the emperor's own greed and every young man in that village who went, was killed. Only this man's son survived because of his broken leg, which in time healed. And so, to this day in that village, they say, what seems like a blessing may be a curse. What seems like a curse may be a blessing. Thank you for that, Joel. It's the it's the first story I, I ever heard you tell, so that's lovely. Oh, Thank you. good. I think I, I, I did. I tell it at. I think I told it at. Um, you did. You at did. Rancho La Puerta. That's right. That's right. right. Not Rancho La Puerta. At, at Puerto Vallarta. At Puerto Vallarta. Correct. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So, Joel, as we wrap up, I do have one final question. I, I have an audience, as you know, full of storytellers, who they're out there armed with their cameras. They've got their editing stations. They're working with their ideas. What, if anything, would you like to impart to them as a fellow storyteller? I think that in addition to being storytellers, their job is to listen and to have soft shoulders for the stories that come tap them on the shoulders and and really let themselves honestly ask, what wisdom have I gained? And what is it in this this long, involved, expensive, complicated grant writing, multiple draft letters to friends, Indiegogo campaign? What is it in this whole process that I end up with that is a treasure that I wish to pass on at the ending of this movie? Joel, you are the treasure, and I am happy to be passing on your infinite wisdom soon to as many people as possible through this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. What a pleasure, and thank you as well for helping, uh, helping documentarians find their way to do really, really important work. Thank you so much, Joel. Tell me, uh, where, can our, where can my listeners go to find your books as well as I know that you have uh, consulting services as well? That's right. My website is storypage.com, S-T-O-R-Y-P-A-G-E.com. And that is under construction. I'm redoing it for the new year, but that has contact information and then information about both my books, uh, the one we spoke about, which is The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness, and also uh, an information about the 
new newer book, which is uh, which was a Hanukkah book, which of course just has passed, is called Dreidels on the Brain. Right. Of course, those can be purchased at bookstores like Powell's, as well as places online like Amazon and others. Man, Joel, thank you so much. I am I am so so happy that uh, and I'm filled with a lot of gratitude after this conversation. Uh, I look forward to the next time I see you and or speak with you. That's right, and we're going to head off to Cambodia and find Elvis. You're damn right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh hey, thank man. Thank you so much, Chris. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Joel. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye bye. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. 